Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of Jesus' world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I am far too quick to pass judgment. And Jesus says, judge not. I am far too quick to judge. And yet Jesus says, judge not. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 1, Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. He goes on to say that the judgment that you pronounce, by that you'll be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured against you. How can you see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Well, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first. And then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mean, I think it is the most ignored commandment of Jesus amongst his disciples. Judge not. I mean, especially in the life of the church, what is the greatest criticism that is often given of the church out in the world? That we are so judgmental. And yet Jesus so clearly says, judge not. And it's not just the most ignored command, perhaps, of Jesus, but it's also the most misunderstood. Because the question rightly comes up, well, Lord, are you saying that I'm not to make any judgments of any kind? I'm not to discern between good and evil? I mean, doesn't Isaiah 5 say, woe to those who call evil good and good evil? I mean, are we called to exercise wisdom and discernments? to sort through the things of this life? And the answer is yes. Jesus, thankfully, in the very next verse, following these first few verses here in Matthew chapter 7, if you're there with me in Matthew 7, either in your Bibles or the Pew Bibles or in your iPhones, verse 6 of Matthew 7, the very next verse after this do not judge section, says, do not give holy things to dogs. Do not throw pearls before pigs, for they'll trample them under feet and attack you. I mean, what Jesus is saying there is you are called to discern. You're just not called to judge. As Spurgeon once said, the saints are not judges. The saints are not simpletons either. We are called to exercise discernment and wisdom, but it's a very different thing than casting judgment, and we do it so quickly. So here's the hope. Here's the good news of the gospel this morning. For those of us who are quick to judge, and I know I'm the only one in the room who's quick to judge. For those of us who are quick to judge, here's the good news. 
that though Jesus will point out that the judge in me is a fool and is a fraud, ooh, those are gonna be hard to hear, but it's true. But though Jesus says that the judge in me and you is a fool and a fraud, the judge in you and I is finished at the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross is where the judge in you and I will be put to death if we truly understand what is taking place at the foot of the cross. See, first, the judge in me and you is a fool. Verse one, judge not. And you might say, well, Lord, why not? Because it's not your job. It's not your role. There is only one true judge, and that is God himself. In fact, Paul will go on to say in Acts chapter 17 that the resurrection of Jesus is meant to be the sign to the world of who the true and righteous judge is. The judge who we confess every week in the creed will come again to judge the living and the dead. The sign proof, who is this judge? God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ, the risen one, the true and only judge. This is why James 4 says, you know, there is only one lawgiver and judge who can destroy and save. So why do you cast judgment on your neighbor? What James is getting at is that this is not our job. But even more so, we're not very good at it. That's the reason we're not to judge is not only is it God's job, but the foolishness is we're not very good at judging. We often get it wrong. We don't know what we don't know. We think we're right, but we're often wrong. We're not omniscient. We don't see all the perspective of the world. I mean, it was a first century Greek philosopher named Epictetus who said that it is Man is disturbed not by events, things that are going on. Man is disturbed by his judgment on the events. In other words, the events take place. It's our perspective, our interpretation of something that happens. That is what disturbs us. Like your best friend walks in the room and sort of gives you a furtive little glance and then turns away and hastily walks away through the room and doesn't say hello to you, doesn't talk to you. And immediately what happens? You say, what did I do? There's something wrong. Uh, clearly, I, I, it was that thing I said yesterday, clearly, or maybe he misunderstood. He hates me. He truly hates me today. And you realize, in fact, he's just looking for his car keys because he's late. You've got it completely wrong. And we do it all the time. You know, when I was in 12th grade, I was dating a girl named Andrea. You know it didn't last because I'm married to a woman named Monica, but I was dating Andrea in 12th grade. I was a brand new Christian and I dated lots of pagan girls. And so now I thought I gotta date a Christian girl. So I was dating a Christian girl at church and it, it was okay. But I mean, um, you'll see more in the story as we go. But I had gotten early college acceptance into the University of Alberta in Canada. And so I was excited about that. And Andrea had not yet chosen where she was gonna apply for college. And she was asking me over a few weeks, a lot of questions about the University of Alberta. And then one night I get this phone call on a Friday night 
Remember back in the day when there were no texts and no emails and it was just like that little box that sat there and you had a little light flash and you pressed it and they would like speak back to you this tinny hollow voice. Well, there's Andrea leaving me a voice message. She says, I am so excited. I got the best news ever about my future. I can't wait to tell you on Sunday morning. And I immediately knew she was applying to the University of Alberta. She was gonna go to the same college with me and I was so upset. I didn't quite know why I was upset. This was kind of strange, but I was so worried. She's gonna go to the same college as me and I called my friends and I said, this is what she said. And they said, what does that mean? I said, it means she's going to the University of Alberta and I'm terrified. And they said, is that what it means? I said, that's exactly what it means. And I went through the next 36 hours determined and terrified and so upset. And I walked in Sunday morning and she walked up to me and said, I'm so excited. She said, I'm I'm going to be an aunt. My sister's having a baby. And I went, oh. And I realized in that moment two things. Number one, I should not be dating Andrea anymore. I mean, why did I react like that? But the second thing I realized is just how dead wrong I could get it. Like completely wrong. And I was completely convinced I was right. I had spent 36 hours of agony and even coming up with strategies and plans of how to deal with this. Maybe I'd go to a different college on something that was completely not accurate. And I know I'm the only one in the room that's ever done this, right? This is what happens so often with us is even when we think we've got all the facts and all the information, the truth is we are not omniscient. We cannot assign motive. We love to do that. And we love to figure out that I know exactly how the world works, but I don't know how the world works. I don't know the situation completely, and I fall short again and again. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, now I see through a glass darkly. Then I shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know as I am fully known. The judge in me is a fool. He gets it wrong. It's not my job. But also he's a fraud. And this is where it gets hard to hear. Verse two, Jesus says, with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, you can't stand under your own judgment. If the judgments that you and I placed upon others were placed upon us, we would stand completely condemned. It's like Francis Schaeffer used to say, and this is a image, I'm not saying this is scriptural, this isn't like really there, but it's a great image. He said, it's as if every human being has a little invisible recorder that's placed around their neck. And every time that we cast judgment on somebody, either with our lips or even just in our minds, the recorder records that. And at the end of time, when we stand before the judgment seat of God and we say, well, I think I did all right, he'll just take out the recorder and play back all the judgments. And every time we've judged someone else, the Lord God will simply say, and how would you stand under the same judgment? And we will be destroyed and condemned by it. This is what it would be like if it was not for a savior that we standing in judgment over others cannot stand under our own judgment. That's why Romans chapter two says, you casting judgment on your brother are condemned because you do the same things. 
And we do it all the time. Jesus says in verse three and four, he uses this imagery of taking the speck out of a brother's eye when you've got a log in your own. It's a ridiculous image to show us just how ridiculous we are. In fact, it's a congenital condition that we all have. It comes back to us again and again throughout our lives. It's what I like to call log eye. It comes back more often than we'd like. These moments when we can stand casting judgment on another broken sinner as a broken sinner. As John Stott liked to say, we have a fatal ability to exaggerate the sins of others and minimize the gravity of our own. We have a fatal ability to exaggerate the sins of others and minimize the gravity of our own. That's what law guy is. And what Jesus says of it is a very harsh word in verse five. He says, hypocrites. You think you're the judge. It feels good, doesn't it? Like I'm standing in judgment. I, I'm the morally righteous one. I know and they are the enemy and I figured it out. It feels good, it feels cathartic, but it's totally fraudulent. You're a hypocrite. It's one of his worst, harshest criticisms because it means you're an actor, you're a faker, you're a fraud. It's not real. You know, there's these moments when we as sinners love to get up on our high horses and stand in condemnation over others. I know we, we're, we're careful how we word it. You know, we do a bit of the, you know, bless their heart thing. But the truth is, we are truly standing in judgment over them. And we need moments like David had in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David, the great king of Israel, but the great flawed sinner as well, just like you and I, has, has sinned against Uriah by not only taking his wife Bathsheba, trying to hide the sin, and then eventually gets Uriah killed on purpose in order to cover his sin. And when the prophet Nathan comes in and says, there's this man who stole another man's sheep, David comes down with righteous judgment on the man and says, he must be put to death. And what does Nathan say in that moment? He says, you are the man. You are the man. You're the one that's done this. You're a fraud. You're not a judge. And we need to hear this harsh word spoken over our judgment that not only is it foolish, but it's fraudulent. Are you ready for the gospel? The good news is this. Here's the good news. That though the judge in me is a fool and a fraud, the judge in me and the judge in you is finished at the foot of the cross. Finished at the foot of the cross. You know, verse five, when Jesus gives this hypothetical, it's a rhetorical absurdity. The idea that you could first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see correctly to be able to take the speck out of your brother's. Jesus isn't actually suggesting this is something you can do. It's an impossibility. It's ridiculous. Just like in 
John chapter eight, verse seven, when Jesus says to the crowd wanting to stone the woman caught in adultery, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. He isn't inviting them to say, well, I mean, how am I doing today? No, the point is no one can throw the stone. If you get the log out of your eye, guess what you'll find? There's a forest in there. The truth, and we see it when we come to Calvary, is there is only one who has ever walked through this life without a log in his eye. And how does he look upon us sinners? There is only one who has walked through this life who is truly without sin. And how many stones does he throw against sinners? You see, at the foot of the cross, what we find is the one who is the true judge, the one whose job it is to truly judge the living and the dead. When he looks upon sinful, broken humanity, what is his response? To pick at specks? To toss stones? No, he looks with mercy and grace. And let's be clear. It doesn't mean he just says, oh, it doesn't matter. The sin does matter. And what does the righteous judge do? He judges sin. Sin must be punished. Sin must be accounted for. But the righteous judge, instead of throwing it upon the sinner, takes it upon himself. He stands in judgment, or better in this moment, he hangs in judgment over the world, bearing the judgment of the world. He hangs on the cross as the true judge of the universe, looking on you and I with no logs in his eyes, no sin on him, and yet all the sin has been thrown onto him. This is why he cries out at the end, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can the eternal, log-free, sin-free son of God feel abandoned by the Father? Because in that moment, the righteous one has taken everything vile and broken and punishable that was on us on himself and becomes a thing of reviling before the father. The father turns his face away from the son because the son is bearing everything wrong in the world in his own body. This is what happens at the foot of the cross. The only one who could judge us could point and laugh and ridicule us instead looks on us in mercy and love. Oh, how much we need to learn from Jesus. What's amazing is when we come to this place that the judge in us beholds the cross. And by the way, this happens again and again. We, we get log eye again. We come back to the cross. Oh, let the judge in me die. Like it happens again and again. This is why we come to church every week. So we're reminded, we confess our sins. We find the logs yet again are there. We come to the base of the cross. We find ourselves forgiven and it transforms us and kills the judge in us. And here's what's amazing. When the judge in us dies, when the judge in us is finished at the foot of the cross in the face of grace and mercy, suddenly something else emerges. We start becoming discerning disciples. You know that other side of it, the pearls before pigs part, discerning well? Suddenly we start living into that. I can be a humble disciple who can discern before God how to live in this world. You know, Henry Nouwen 
says this. He says, often I've asked myself, what would it be like if I no longer had any desire to judge another person? What would it be like if I no longer had any desire to judge another? And then he says this, I would walk the earth as a very light person indeed. No desire to judge another. I would walk this earth as a very light person indeed. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as you've been forgiven. I close with this, that when we were beginning seminary, it was a big seminary, first week of seminary, being trained up for ordained ministry. The seminary forced us all into small groups. It was, it was required. You as a seminarian and your spouse, they assigned you into small groups. And we all protested. We said, no, you can't like force community. Community is organic and you can't require this. And they said, shut up and go to your small groups. And so we went to our small groups. And we sat there reluctantly, didn't know each other. People traveled from all around the world, international seminary. And there was this one girl in our group, one couple. And the girl, like five minutes into our first small group meeting, said, I don't want to be here. I don't know any of you. I don't think I want to get to know any of you. I think this is ridiculous. And just went off. I'd never met an Australian before. But it was just, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. The story gets better if you're Australian. But I mean, she just went off. And I mean, she just showed everything she was feeling. And I sat there in silent condemnation, judging her. I figured out in that moment quietly her whole family of origin. She had daddy issues. She had mummy issues. She had all kinds of psychological issues. That marriage was clearly in trouble. I mean, I had a whole backstory built and I did everything I could at seminary for the next few weeks to avoid her. Week four, We've been in group each week and I've been avoiding her. For some reason, the topic that week was forgiveness and just how blind we are to our own sin. And I was just personally struck by the gospel. And something shifted in that moment. I looked across the group and I saw this woman there and I thought, I have stood in judgment over you. And the truth is you're not a bad person. You're just going through a bad season. You moved all the way across the world to follow your husband to seminary. I mean, who knows what's going on? And I just had compassion and I walked across the room. How much does that action sometimes change everything? Just walking across the room at the end of small group and Monica and I started talking to her and her husband. And within a second or two, I thought she's hilarious. She's kind. We kept chatting. We hung out. We became friends. Year one, year two, year three, year four. And if you want to get a sense of how much my opinion of this woman changed, her name is Kiralee. Our fourth daughter is named Kiralee. How wrong the judge in me was how much I totally would have missed what God was going to show me if I'd let that little judge live. Jesus comes, brings us to the foot of the cross and finishes the judge in us. And he does it each time we gather. 
Every time we gather together, he reminds us of just how broken we are, just how many logs we have in our eyes, how foolish the judge is in us, how fraudulent the judge in us, and at the foot of the cross, that judge is finished. For friends, every time we come to the foot of the cross, this is what we find. The one who has no logs in his eyes, the only one, the true judge, who has no logs in his eyes, how does he look upon sinners like you and me? With mercy and grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.